Hello and welcome to the back page of the Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're joined by another special guest. So Louise, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Louise Blaine. I'm a freelance writer and presenter. Uh, and I work across games, tech, and horror movies, mainly. Wow, yeah. I mean, you are uh, such a professional presenter. Like, just from your cadence there, I realised the, the gulf between us. Oh, no. <laughs> you're, uh, you're on the BBC, and we're um, we're amateur hours. So I guess, like, to, to kind of give a bit of a background, that you've worked with me and Matthew before at Future, yeah. and then you've kind of graduated into, you know, full-time presenting and and writing and editing um, freelance, like you say. So can you tell us a bit about your background in media? Gosh, it makes me feel old every time I say it, but I've now been in the industry for 10 years. I first got my job as a staff writer on official PlayStation magazine in 2011. And I remember that because my first review was Assassin's Creed Revelations. That's how I literally work out my entire life now, is down to which Assassin's Creed (laughs) releases there are. (laughs) But um, yeah, so I worked as a staff writer for six months, um, I moved back up to Scotland, did a little bit of freelancing, did a work for other companies. And then I came back down to Bath. So I was in the future office when I rejoined Games Radar as a news writer. And then I went on, I think I was doing, uh, I was then a channel editor on Games Radar. So I've I've been really lucky in the fact that I've worked on a lot of mags like you guys, like writing for Games Master and PSM3 and all the sort of old school classic ones before they're sadly gone. And yeah, I'm working online as well. So basically what games radar gave me was then being able to do video and guides and reviews and then i got to do a little bit of entertainment stuff as well so it really that was great because i got to kind of branch out a bit and then i moved from games radar to work on the logitech g youtube channel so i did that for a bit on their editorial side basically making list videos and stuff and now i have been sort of self-employed and doing my own thing since last september so i work for the BBC, I do stuff for BBC Radio Scotland. I do a weekly tech slot talking about consumer tech and gaming, if I can get it in there. And I also now host BBC Radio 3's Sound of Gaming show, which is every month. So um, it's been a lovely... I, I feel very lucky for my sort of progression that I've gone through. It's been it's been really nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you always want to move into presenting or was like writing your first love? Do you know, I th- writing was my first love, but I think when I went to uni and I did film and media and I did... Initially, I did loads of, um, they kind of forced us into radio modules. And initially, I was like, oh, I don't want to do radio. I don't, that's not what I want to do. But then I really got into radio stuff and I really got into listening to podcasts. And so that was always a really nice thing that I always really enjoyed. Writing was always the thing that I loved. Like I loved, um, I've always loved writing about uh, films. So I, I, at one point, do you remember they did the really cheap Cineworld card? for like absurd prices and yeah. what would happen is my mum would get me that every year for my birthday and then so that I knew so that she knew that I was taking it seriously and I was using it <laughs> I reviewed every movie I saw so I've always loved I've always loved writing and I think I thought I would become like a movie reviewer but I've always you know games have been something that I've loved ever since my first PlayStation so it actually when I got into when I got into OPM and suddenly was writing the demo disc page. Remember that? <laughs> when I was writing the demo <laughs> disc page. And that was something that when I was wee, you know, that was something that my brother and I were completely obsessed with. So it's um, it's all just been kind of this lovely combination of all the things that I love. But I think video is 
video was a really interesting exercise in sort of learning how to write differently. Learning how to to write for video was very different to writing for a magazine or writing for a website. So suddenly you kind of develop all of these different voices. And I've done it again for Radio 3 because I have to realise that I'm writing a script for a Saturday afternoon audience who have just been listening to an awful lot of classical music and potentially don't really know what games are. So I feel like I have to, I can mm. talk to the people who the people who haven't picked up a controller, but also so that the people who love games can connect with it as well and not go, oh, this is basic. Why, why are we even talking about this? So that's an interesting challenge as well. So it's constantly been endless learning about writing for different audiences. And also working out how to write 5,000 Assassin's Creed previews for every magazine of future. Because okay. I remember you were always our like absolute go-to for Assassin's Creed, as you were for many other magazines. Yeah, it was, that was insane. I think... I think over the last 10 years, I think I've exhausted every pun that you could possibly have. The minute it was, it was like, go and, go and write about that, go and play Assassin's Creed. So that would be great. And I'd come back and the first preview you'd write would be fresh. And you're like, this is great. And then you're like, okay, right. Okay. It's time for Games Masters 1. You're like, I need to change this a little bit. Okay. How do I say all this in different ways? And then you'd have all the crossheads. And then you would have the captions oh. for all the images. And you'd be like, I have already written these puns. You know, I think... I was so excited when Assassin's Creed Syndicate came out because I got things like Hey Boy, Hey Girl, which was one of my favourite Assassin's Creed Syndicate <laughs> puns because I actually got to change things up. Um, but honestly, the, the number of... That's the, that's the first thing that sticks in my mind is not the, not the, yeah. not the paragraphs of stuff, but the accoutrement of, of gaming yeah. magazine sidebars. Ah. Yeah, that's the that's the stuff that yes. breaks you. Yeah, pun trauma. Yeah. That's like something you only get from um, working in print media for sure. Um, no, I was just agreeing wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> was that a weird time to come into magazines, Louise? Because, like you say, some mags are closing down and stuff. Was that kind of a strange time to sort of enter that space for you? Do you know, it really was. I think um, we'd had the sort of golden age of mags because I heard about all these like insane trips that people would go on and all the endless numbers but what was actually happening just as I joined was all of the websites were becoming much more cohesive and essential and it, it was like mags were becoming slightly less relevant um, I think I was I was hired just as official PlayStation magazine got a website before it was then sort of made into Games Radar it had its own individual website and it was one, you know, I think it was one or two, it was Leon uh, Harley and he's just sort of, that was his thing. He was the online ed for that. And I think it was watching mags become slightly less relevant was something that I always came into. So I, I kind of have this idea of what mm. it must have been like in the sort of mid, even to late 2000s. But then when I came in, it, it just, it kind of changed. But at the same time, there was still passionate audiences. There were still really nice communities. There were people that, you know, got in touch about how much they loved the mag and things. So I think there was still a an audience there. And there still is now. Um, but everyone's just kind of performing a, a different function. It was, a, it was an interesting mm. time. Yeah. So moving into mainstream presenting is really impressive. I listened to, um, you know, a few episodes of Sound of Gaming and I was really impressed that you know, you you kind of like um, badge each episode by theme and then have like a, you know, kind of cool, uh, relevant guests. And then you kind of introduce what the game is before you um, uh, you play the music. So uh, I guess like, what's it like angling a show like that for a mainstream audience? Uh, I think it's, I, I really, I, I really enjoy the fact that I work quite closely with the production team on it because they basically say to me what are we doing and I go oh well there's this new game and this new game and there's this theme that we could go for 
but at the same time it means that they can kind of filter me a little bit so I'll um I'll come up with the games and um I'll listen to the soundtracks because actually that's something I've always loved is I've always worked to gaming soundtracks because they're wonderful and they don't have any words to get mm. in the way of our words I don't know if you guys are the same I can't write to music that yeah, has words yeah, yeah. so I've always loved gaming soundtracks oh, yeah. so I feel like I have this kind of bank of a good knowledge of that so it's nice to be able to pick the things I like and sort of send them to them and what they'll then do is they'll listen to the soundtracks to make sure that that hour has a really nice musical flow so they'll make sure that there's lots of different tones and themes and instrumentation which I is not my thing but importantly what they also do is once I've got my script to them they go through the script and go, well, that's a bit, you know, the, these all these acronyms, you're going to need to explain what that is, or you're going to need to explain what a Metroidvania is. Like, we did an episode on dark fantasy and Metroidvania, and suddenly it was a case of, right, I need to explain what this word means and why it's important and also play these soundtracks. And suddenly you're like this is all quite a lot. So it's really good to be able to send a script to the producers who then highlight bits and go, this makes no sense to a normal human, Louise. What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> and I think but with every script that I've done, I've got better at it. You know, I've worked out how to say that or actually these people don't really need to know the intricacies of this or let's talk about roguelikes from the base level. <laughs> Thank you. Start again. Mm. Do it again. That's been the biggest challenge is talking to the widest possible audience without making anyone feel talk down to or gatekeepery i think that's really important to make everyone welcome in it and we've had really good feedback from people that are like i've never played a game in my life but this sounds great it's a whole world of this i might do it you know so i think even changing one mind a week about what video games are because video game soundtracks are incredible <laughs> is is a good thing so that's been the most challenging but also kind of the most rewarding bit too yeah, yeah, you're very you're very concise. You're very good at like boiling down this is what this game is, this is what its place in the landscape is, here's how it relates to the theme of this episode, and then kind of going from there. I mean, like you say, Metroidvania, that's not even a term that people who work in games media can agree on the correct totally. like, definition of. <laughs> that's so. it. I think you've got to go, okay, guys, I'm not going to... It's like roguelike and roguelite. I'm never going to break that down on Sound of Gaming. That's just that's just not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, so just be glad that I'm using a word. <laughs> like, just be glad that I'm using a word that pertains to this industry. But yeah, like, I think I think our industry can get really obsessed with uh, terms and boiling down really really big like tiny details that i think sometimes that can seem overwhelming and it's really important mm. for us to be able to tell those differences but at the same time i think we also need to kind of be ready to unshackle ourselves from them a bit for further understanding and accept uh, you know it's it's video games have been accepted so that's not a question anymore <laughs> like we're all doing it but i think for individual people to kind of understand the intricacies of it we need to kind of be a little bit faster and looser with how we talk about them mm. yeah how, how do you um how do you find the interviews because i imagine for like game composers who whose music maybe has been overlooked in more traditional spaces they must be pretty pumped to get asked to be on like bbc radio 3 i mean it's a pretty big deal it's you know it's amazing it's made me happy every time because i kind of i don't forget but it's the fact that they always get offered up in interviews and stuff and I don't think the I don't think the coverage of gaming music is ever as big as it should be I think it's always level mm. designers and everyone else which is fine but at the same time the music is there's nothing I've gone through you know so many I think almost a year now and there hasn't been an episode where I haven't learned something amazing from a composer about what they did with the music you know I think 
so they're they're always super excited to talk you can just get them started like so we have this um we have this section which is it's called the cut scene and that's where the interview lives but what's cool is at the start of it we get them to kind of talk over a piece or a theme kind of song exploder style so they just break it down while you're listening to it and you get this amazing they're so excited to talk about it and they talk about the real intricacies of it and you get this new appreciation for that theme that you heard when you went over that hill in that game but suddenly Mm. (laughs) you're getting all of what what went into it and them sitting alone or austin wintry wrote the theme for journey when he was on the way back from the car after his first meeting he was on his way to the car and he was like oh i I think we should do this and he wrote the journey theme like that just (laughs) you know off the cuff on the hoof just about to get into his car oh yeah i'll just write one of the greatest you know themes of of modern gaming just on the way i'll just write it down i'll just pop a napkin on the back of my hand it's fine but you know it was it was moments that you know when they you're listening to that and he's saying those things so i think they're enthusiastic about it they love it and i i learned so much and they they use some bizarre instruments sometimes it's really cool they basically like um, i think it was gareth coker for immortals phoenix rising commissioned this lear lear instrument which had never been basically had never been created for hundreds of years and he just basically had it made so that it sounded a bit more greek you know so it's, <laughs> it's amazing the stuff that they that they talk about is really cool that's so wild <laughs> that's really cool uh, louise we brought you on this episode because you know i've wanted to have you on uh, since we started doing this but ubisoft rudely didn't release an assassin's creed game this year so rude so um uh, you're very rude so um it's obviously like halloween time and we're talking about horror games in this episode so you know, you're someone I know is a horror expert. So is that your first love um, horror when it comes to sort of like uh, sort of media generally? Is that the thing that you're sort of most interested in or is that kind of like a, a secondary interest for you? It's kind of, it becomes a more primary interest in times like this at Halloween. Um, it becomes all <laughs> I experience is horror. But horror movies have always been something that I've really loved. And generally the horror genre as a whole, I think when you, if you are of a creepy inclination and you grew up in the 90s and you were reading Goosebumps books and point horror books and just consuming (laughs) them Um, if you are if you like horror suddenly they're just gateways to everything else and suddenly you're watching Scream and suddenly you're watching all the late 90s horror and then for me seeing all the late 90s horror movies kind of I was really young and suddenly when you watch something like that and you think, oh my word, like grown-ups are making scary stuff. Like grown-ups are, this is what they do. They can do this. All these grown-ups made this and there's going to be more of it. So suddenly that kind of unleashed this whole smorgasbord of genre work for me And, and I've literally spent the 25 years, and I hate saying that, since Scream was first released, filling out what all the references in it were (laughs) because I was really young when I saw it so I feel like I've spent the last 25 years doing my scream homework and I enjoyed it when I first saw it but I enjoy it even more now and I think what games have done in that is the fact that I get to experience and one of my choices for my favorite games is directly related to a horror movie but I think the the kind of interaction that you get when you play a horror game is very very different to the one when you watch a horror movie um, to the point where sometimes it's a much more challenging to play but i think they all kind of the best horror games tick the same boxes as horror films they're kind of the ones that stick with you and stay with you and kind of sear themselves into your brain in Mm. in a kind of a good way so i think the horror genre in all of its forms all kind of tick boxes for me in different ways whether i want to you know listen to ghost stories or watch horror movies or tv series or play them 
horror is a continually surprising intelligent genre and i think people get that wrong they think it's stupid and gory and silly but actually it's about the human condition and it's essential for us to experience i think so i'm I'm a big fan of like genre cinema i don't get on as well with horror because i'm a huge wuss like everything scares me i'm I'm just the idea of horror film is a huge hurdle for me to get over to Mm. actually start watching it in the first place but i do wonder about you know, people who are self-confessed horror fans and have seen as many horror films as you. Like, does it become... Do you find it, like, hard to find stuff that kind of, like, affects you or kind of gets to you in the same way as those earlier films? Like, do you get a bit desensitised to horror or does horror have to do, like, truly wild stuff to affect you these days? Do you know, now I don't think it... It's not like, oh, you need to turn the gore up to 11. I think what's interesting now, especially we're having this sort of horror renaissance now it's not that horror ever went away but we're having i mean we've got shudder which is that horror streaming service and we've just seen the mm. we've just seen the sort of re- reimagining of Candyman, and we've just seen another song we've got more scream we've got another texas chainsaw we've got more evil dead like we're now getting recreations of everything that we have always loved but i do think that looking at independent horror and independent filmmakers what i'm looking for is i think i'm just looking for something human you know i think a direct mm. example of something that's terrible is um there's a new Amazon Prime I Know What You Did Last Summer TV series and it's dreadful. It's not even fun. It's just really badly written, really terrible plotting and I actually don't think horror fans are looking for, like, I don't think they're looking for the impossible. I think they're looking for Mm. characters they can connect with, situations that feel convincing and plausible. You know, for instance, last year's um, Zoom-based horror, Host, that came out of nowhere. It's 56 minutes long. The guys made it over lockdown. They never even met their actors because they recorded it over Zoom. And it perfectly tapped into our fears that even though we were in lockdown, something could still get us. And that's a very base Mm. fear. You know, the idea that you're sitting with all your friends in front of you in little boxes, but something can still find you and happen Mm. to you when you're on your own. And that's not that's not reinventing the wheel you know the, the, the host didn't do anything that no film has ever done before but it it gave you characters that you vouched that you loved that you connected with that at least one of your mm. friends was like them it gave you situations of oh i'm just at home and it gave you relatable sort of lockdown moments and all of that combined when it went really wrong <laughs> was so much more <laughs> effective and, and really got mm. me i mean it really got me i was sitting petrified for the, for, the, for the last 15 minutes of that film, it did not, it was relentless. So it didn't do anything different, but it, it did it did it mm. well. And I think that's what I want horror to do. I want, I want to be convinced and I want good filmmaking and, and genre filmmaking is often powerful enough to, to be successful at that. What I loved about Host was that it kind of maximised every possible scare you could get out of mm-hmm. that one idea. And like, it was so innovative in that sense. It was like asking the question, like, what are the different ways we can kind of fuck you up with this one quite simple format and um it turns out you know there are loads of sophisticated ways to to freak (laughs) you out the thing i always remember from that film is the um the looping animation um yes the uh, background yes the background that kind of loops and then that just um that fucked me up a little bit that was quite spooky i I can't watch that film (laughs) (laughs) it's it's officially the scariest i think there was um i can't remember which site did like according to science host is the scariest and i think they just hooked a lot of people up to fitbits (laughs) and tracked their heart rate so it used to be (laughs) it used to be sinister and now it's host host is at the top of that and those guys actually 
LFF just had the premiere of those guys' new movie, which is called Dashcam. So apparently, if you didn't like what Host did with Zoom, you're not going to like what Dashcam does with cars. <laughs> so, <laughs> and those are kind of vital. There's a quote for the poster. <laughs> yeah. Your recommendations for Shudder. I meant I had a good Halloween last year, Louise. Oh, like, good. I watched Hell. Yeah, I watched Hell House and One Cut of the Dead and that weird Jesse Eisenberg film where they've got the child in that stranger state that oh, was vivarium. quite fucked up vivarium. yeah vivarium yeah. uh scare me i watched as well i really like that the one about the writers that was a great yeah. a great horror film um so yeah your taste is um impeccable you appear on the um popular evolution of horror podcast too right you go on you yeah. go on that one sometimes yeah, yeah. mike yeah mike munzer um runs that he goes through sort of one genre at a time i think it's four years he's been running it for um and he's currently on aliens but um, yeah, I've done a few episodes, and I, that's I tend to cover Fright Fest with him as well, which is which is really fun. But yeah, thank you for that. I'm glad my Shudder recommendations because it's such a good service. Uh, so, what about your background with horror games? Then, like, what's your starting point there? You say Goosebumps and Point Horror are significant for you, um, getting into the genre generally. But what yeah. about on the game side? On the game side, I mean, I played Resident Evil. Uh, the first Resident Evil I played with my brother, and I think everyone has that story of when they first watched that, you know, the the zombie looking over the shoulder thing. But that genuinely really bothered me when when I played it, and I still think that the mm. I still think that the dog scare in that is still petrifying, because I think as well as it just being a jump scare, I think it also scared you into thinking, what can games do? Like you're not safe mm. in these games. These games can they can come through the windows at you when you just think this is a corridor because. Back then, you weren't entirely sure what games could do because everything felt great. Like if you could see something out of a window in a game, you spent ages looking at it going, this is amazing. It's like there's, I can see views, I can see other places. So suddenly when something almost broke the rules of itself to scare you, you were just like, I don't, I, I can't do this. This is, the, this is the scariest thing. So I played that. But then I think all the, the sort of the horror games that stick with me were games like Silent Hill, um, especially one of the ones that I'm going to talk about today. But there's a lot of, I don't, I'm quite sort of careful with the with what horror games I play, simply because I do find them a lot more frightening <laughs> than horror movies. Right. I can just mainline horror movies. I do have to get myself into a specific mindset. I can't just go, oh, it's time for a horror game, because I find that they're so effective and they're so, you are so a part of that world and it's so unsafe. I find there's a real, mm. a good horror game is properly unsafe. And I think that's the best way for them to be. But also it means that I do have to sort of psych myself up to do it. I'm not some kind of desensitised monster of horror games. I, I do have to be ready. That's cool. Because, uh, yeah, one one thing that sort of bugs me a little with the horror scene is where, you know, the, the next big thing, the allegedly the next scariest film ever or whatever comes out and you get all the horror buffs who are kind of, yeah, I saw it. it. wasn't a problem at all. And then I go and see it, and I basically shit myself inside out. <laughs> yep. And it's just a, a truly horrendous. And I just wonder, like, does this does any of this work for people anymore? But you know, as you said earlier, you know, it's a case of what it maybe does around the edges that that kind of that helps elevate these things. So I think that's that's good to hear. I think there's an investment too, isn't there? Like, I think. I think people, when they're either, even if they're, whether they're playing horror games or they're seeing horror movies, like they expect to sit in front of it and for it to do a trick and for them to immediately mm. be scared. But actually good horror is about investment. I mean, it's like when people watch the Blair Witch Project, there's, I mean, loads of us. I mean, I'm particularly, it's one of the, my favorite horror films. I find it completely petrifying and awful. But then there's also people that go, you didn't see anything, it was rubbish. And it's that, mm. that's the perfect example of the investment that you need to have. So when you play a horror game, you automatically put yourself in that situation, which is investment. You spend time in it, which is investment. And then 
you fully believe it. So actually they don't, and you're also playing a horror game. So you're aware of what surroundings you have. You know that when you go down a corridor, something is going to happen. So a good, a good, a perfect scare there. I actually, I was um, interviewing some horror composers for a, an NME piece that's, I think it's probably going out next week. Um, and they were talking about how to, while jump scares are easy, tension is not. But when it's done right, it's amazing. So you can walk up a corridor and actually in Resident Evil Village, there's, I'm not, I won't spoil what it is, but there's a corridor that you walk down where there's so much tension being racked up where you're literally, your controller is just like, you cannot grip it hard enough as you're walking down this corridor because you know something will arrive at the other end and it's going to be awful. And personally, if Winnie the Pooh had just popped out at the other end of that corridor, I would have been petrified because of the way that scare right. had been built. But what it was, was something that literally made my brain feel like it was unhinging. <laughs> like, and I just, I was like, I need to go to bed. I can't do this. But I think you need to put yourself in. And as much as you put in is as much as you'll get out, which is why I hate it when people are, oh, it's rubbish. It's terrible. It's not enough. It's plenty enough if you put yourself in that situation. Very well put. Uh, Shall we take a quick break then and we'll come back with some um, cool horror recommendations, talk about some of the games that we've picked. I think that'd be good. For the um, people listening at home, we're going to do this episode a bit like our Indie Games Hall of Fame episode where we all pick five games and kind of go in a circle. So um, I think people will look forward to that. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back with our horror recommendations. Let's do it. Welcome back to the podcast. So let's talk about some cool horror games. Louise, you picked five games. We each picked five games. Let's start with one of yours and we'll um, we'll talk about some cool horror games to uh, spook people for Halloween. What's your first pick? Okay, so my first pick is Layers of Fear, which is from Bluebird Team, who have done lots and lots of horror games since, but I don't think any of them have really lived up to Layers of Fear, which is actually quite short, but it's when you're going into a creepy mansion full of creepy paintings and you are an artist looking to finish your masterwork um, which is particularly grim and you basically discover the the horrible history of this man and the house that he's in and I, I can honestly say it's kind of like one of those brilliant James Wan ghost roller coaster movies where it just you it just zips along it scares you in all the right ways but it's also it does with what I was talking about earlier, where it plays with your expectations all the time. Liberty team are really good at that. So it, um, you're going along a corridor and you might turn around and, you know, there was because there was a noise behind you. And then the minute you spin around again, the room's changed or there's now a wall there or things are shrinking. So there's no way you can go. And it kind of expertly steers you through this horrific house of of nastiness and it it hits all the spots. Like there's there's a point with some really creepy dolls. There's points where they're sort of, things collapsing around you there's lots of jump scares and it gets a bit weird and the end doesn't really land for me but there's so many scares leading up to it that I absolutely forgive the ending because Layers of Fear just properly scares me every time I play it I think I've played it two or three times and it's just it gets worse every time Mm. (laughs) so your stance on jump scares right is that they have to be earned basically yes so do you think this game earns the jump scares that it has you know I think it does earn them I think initially you might be like oh that was really cheap I've jumped out my skin but actually it does enough with your I think your positioning it's one of the most sort of inventive games that way where you know when sometimes you play a game you go was it meant to do that (laughs) but Layers of Fear doesn't do that it's so 
it, it's so confident in its design of how to scare you and how to misdirect things and its use of audio and its use of even the base fear of paintings are scary paintings that follow you around the room like when you go to an art gallery and suddenly you become a bit fixated on you're looking at print and you're just like oh those eyes can see me those eyes are following me and then when you've got a whole house of them like it just makes the most of them so i'm mm. that that kind of design earns its jump scares throughout i think and sometimes i think you need a jump scare just to just to wake you up a bit and then if something is quiet enough for the next maybe hour then the next jump scare, you're like, okay, yes, you're doing this in the Flanagan way, not in the cheap, terrible way. So that's okay. Okay, mm. yeah, that makes sense. Any thoughts on this one, Matthew? Yeah, I, I, I think you know, I, I've talked about it on this podcast before. Like, I have, I have issues with the later blooper games in terms of I think they're they're trying to be a bit too clever and actually don't necessarily deliver on the big scares. You know, I, I'm, I wasn't wild about like Layers of Fear Two, for example, no. or their their Blair Witch game didn't really do it for me either, or the Medium for that matter. But yeah, this one, great perspective trickery. It's almost like like a really scary version of like some of the Scarecrow stuff in the first Batman game. Yeah. It's that kind of you, you turn around and just on a technical level, the whole room has changed, and it's it's pretty impressive. Like I I, I know why I can un- I fully understand why like lots of people fell in love with Blooper in this game. Yeah, that makes sense. This is one I've yet to play, but it's, I think it's available on basically every format, isn't it? I think it might even be on Switch and stuff. So, yeah, easy to get hold of. Mm. Cool. Um, so my first pick is um, Telltale's The Walking Dead. So not the scariest game, I would say, but it's one we haven't really talked about in this podcast before. Obviously a very significant game in the um, lifespan of that studio. It was kind of the game that made them. And then arguably they used the, the same format too many times and then it kind of lost its magic and they went away. And it was um, a very sad story. But... This first Walking Dead game absolutely clobbered me out of nowhere when it was like, when my interest in The Walking Dead was at its peak, basically, in 2012. So you play uh, Lee, a convicted murderer who essentially becomes a father figure to this uh, orphan girl called Clementine in, in the kind of Walking Dead's basically zombie apocalypse. And... It really demonstrates the power of choice. I mean, the um, the kind of like the big decision in this game that you don't realize you're making is that at one point you take supplies from a car, and then it turns out that you know the quote unquote main villain of the of the game is the person who supplies you took, and they're out for revenge. And that's a really great conceit. And I think what I loved about it was it was very sophisticated for. For for a storyline in The Walking Dead, which I think is maybe too often like here's a big here's a big new bad and a kind of weird new community and um, a shocking character death, and it became a bit too formulaic. And I think this this game had a lot more going on in terms of like emotional depth. I'm assuming Louise that you played this one at the time, right? I did play it at the time, and I, <laughs> these games make me so stressed that such and such will remember this. It's genuinely one of the things that gives me proper anxiety of decision making, simply because I don't <laughs> think other games do it as much. I mean, until Dawn did it, they had like a butterfly effect arriving on the side of the screen, which would say, hey, you've just made a decision that could mean someone could die. But I think The Walking Dead had that painfully human element, you know, that thing of horror that does get you of, I don't actually want anyone to die. I don't want any of these people to die. These people are complex and I'm just making tiny decisions that can affect everyone. So I find them... I find the minutiae of a zombie apocalypse really scary because while, you know, you can see the bigger picture in so many apocalypse games going down into this is just how day-to-day survival is, is much more effective. And especially in that, that first season felt genuinely sort of revelatory of the fact that you were making real differences. 
Um, so yeah, I, I loved that. I loved the book. I didn't go much further. I think I played, how many seasons did it become? Was it four? I think there were four at the end. I think yeah. I played the first two and I haven't played the latter two, but I really enjoyed what I played because I love, I love Clementine and I love their relationship as well. It was lovely. Yeah, mm. for sure. Like um, Matthew, I, I'm guessing that you did play this one because I think you're fairly familiar with Telltale's output. What was your take on it at the time? Yeah, I, likewise, I was kind of really impressed in, in sort of how invested it got me in quite a short amount of time, you know, compared to other game stories. Um, I think the, the arc of that first series is really brilliantly done. It does that great thing that I think like a lot of zombie stuff does where it's more about the kind of conflicts of the survivors and the the, you know the game very uh, cleverly kind of puts you in with people who you're going to have very mixed feelings about and you know what you want to you know what you what's the right thing and what you personally want you know are often very very different yeah this is this is brilliant and I think it's easy to forget that just because the the format has been repeated so much by them that just how how sort of spot on and perfect this was to begin with mm, absolutely so matthew what's your first pick it's it's so it's it's a bit obvious all of mine are quite obvious i think um oh, I don't uh, think I've, so. <laughs> I've gone for uh resident evil one remake um on the gamecube obviously it's been hd'd up since then on just about every platform so this is still readily available but it's the um i don't know frankly astonishing redo of the playstation original um completely transformed uh you know it kind of it's, it's kind of interesting you know it, it you know it is a remake and it's 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 largely the same but it also riffs on the original in some interesting ways so even if you know resident evil very well i think this game kind of plays with expectations a bit and has some sort of fun with this really established like horror text um it's absolutely gorgeous i mean we talked about this on our resident evil episode where you know it isn't necessarily my favorite resident evil but i think it's definitely the best resident evil horror there's ever been um in terms of just the classic sort of you know haunted house um you know it's it's a huge cliche but it's so effectively done and with this visual style it's just so decaying and cursed and you know i just remember being you know opening doors and just looking into the rooms or you know the little sliver of the room that the the camera angle gave you and not being able to sort of proceed into a lot of these places just being kind of sort of frozen to the spot in terms of the dread of the place and i think that's probably the kind of the horror this taps best into um yeah just a really just a really full on frightening experience <laughs> yeah it for really sure. is this this on a crt tv in 2002 was like the nicest looking game i'd ever seen um, yeah louise what's your history with this one um i mean i think i didn't pl- i'm trying to remember where i played it or i might have watched someone play it because i think they're the kind of good ones to actually watch horror games because you've given someone else the controls but i seem to remember the just the feeling of because it's such decadent design it's so Mm. rich those every wall looks truly i think it was something that um village tried to sort of bring back with a sort of decadent nature of lady dimitrescu's incredible castle but it wasn't something you just can't even touch it because that world is just it is just really horrific and i think the idea of those camera angles still frightens me i think there was an entire Mm. generation where 
we I think the power of the I think the power of the second analog stick has really done something for our peace of mind because when you're given these yeah. <laughs> when you're given these restrictive angles, you suddenly you don't feel again safe. There's not a safety aspect. You're suddenly am I running into the camera? Am I running out of it? What's it choosing to show me? And suddenly it's like the most expertly designed or directed horror experience because it's like you're not going to see anything that designers don't want you to see and you're going to feel exactly like this for however long we want you to feel like this. So yeah, I feel like I'm trying to remember my my core experience with this initially, but it is stuck in my head. Yeah, the first, it's funny because I started playing the um, original Resident Evil after we did that podcast because I I, I was like vaguely familiar with it, but had never just like sat down and actually played it. And I think I really underestimated how just how good the original Resident Evil was. Like it was, it's like you know, it has the kind of like flavor of low art, but made by people who are absolutely like artists and geniuses. Like that's what it feels like. It's so sophisticated as a game that like it's quite interesting to see this gorgeous art design and genuinely scary moments and like innovation in horror alongside these really goofy cutscenes and like mm. you're watching high and low art at the same time um which is kind of weird but it's sort of like i don't know it just it just so self-aware and then only six years later six year gap and they make this like it looks like a game that's about 15 years on from from the original so yeah just um, mm. just pure magic what's your second pick louise haha <laughs> my second pick is pt ah wonderful <laughs> What was your um, first experience like with PT? So my first experience, I actually streamed on Twitch to about three <laughs> to about three people because I am not known for being a streamer. <laughs> but I thought I'll stream this because I thought what it will do is it will mean that I have to keep going. <laughs> and I've played it so many times since because um, my PS4, I, I kept it on it. But I think my first experience of PT going around that looping corridor... Um, I mean, if anyone, maybe maybe someone hasn't heard of PT, which was the playable teaser for the then cancelled, tragically, Silent Hills, which was worked on by Guillermo del Toro and Hideo Kojima. But looking at PT's looping corridor was an absolute descent into perfect hell. You, <laughs> It's got that relatable element where you're walking around a suburban house, but things are very wrong. But I think my my most memorable scare in it is quite early on in it you're you're going around and maybe i'm on your you're on your second or third loop and you go around the l shape and lisa who is the horrible ghost creature thing is standing motionless halfway down the corridor Mm. and her legs are kind of apart slightly and her head's tilted and there's a horrible noise that's creeping from the bathroom where the bathroom door is like slightly ajar and you can hear the thing that's in the sink. But I don't think at that point you know what the thing in the sink is. And I did not want to move. I didn't want to go forward. That was it. I, I, I was just done. Was like, this is, I genuinely, it was that moment again that I had in the house Benny Vento this year. It was genuinely, I don't want to go any further because if I do, I think I'll go insane because this is just such... <laughs> combination of things that i don't want to see what happens i mean if that if that figure rushes towards me i don't think i'm going to be able to cope you know and it didn't happen you know you just walk forward and i think she disappears or things go to black or the i think maybe the bathroom door slams but my only my searing memory is is turning that corner and going i don't want to go any further i don't want to do it Uh. and i think it's because it had that perfect combination of total just total nightmare fuel really strange things like the hanging fridge the the first time you saw the hanging fridge that was slightly swinging and 
seeping and screaming slightly. And you're going, this isn't, this is relatable enough. It's kind of that uncanny valley of humanity, isn't it? You're seeing things that are should be normal in strange places and you're being mm. absolutely bombarded by horrific noises. And it's just, it's basically reorganizing your brain because your brain doesn't expect these things. And PT just did that so effortlessly. Mm. yeah absolutely it's uh, a game we talked about quite a while ago in this podcast but yeah like one i kind of miss actually because i gave my ps4 to my dad and now i don't have access to it and um the has pandemic happened <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't but i've told him you cannot delete this from the hard drive Did you give it to him is this cursed <laughs> what a cursed gift <laughs> yeah if you finish this game you can have the ps4 otherwise you know you're trapped your, your soul is mine forever i think where. that might actually like kill my parents if i gave it to them yeah yeah I can, I, there's there's things that i watch or experience that i go i can't tell my mum about this like i literally watched <laughs> i watched a horror movie at fright fest called the sadness which is advertised as the most depraved zombie movie of all time and there was a scene in it that I, I the, basically it was pre-censored so it's not been it hadn't been cut no one will ever see the version right. that we saw but I could never tell my mum and dad about that scene ever <laughs> like there's things wow. in games that I see and things in movies that I see that I'm like no 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 this can never they can never know that this entered my eyes <laughs> <laughs> like, dare, dare I ask what that scene is Louise um okay spoiler warning for the sadness which you will probably not see <laughs> The sadness is about a particular infection which turns people into depraved killers. And not only are they depraved, but they're also sexually depraved. Oh. Um, so, and the thing is, it's 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 told, and I hate to say this, and it, there was a lot of laughter because it's actually very funny because when you make something that dark and if you tonally do it correctly, you can actually make it quite funny. But the sequence involved a man who had... Um, stabbed an umbrella into a girl's eye and then he came back to make the most of the socket. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Yeah, I could see why you wouldn't want to tell your parents about that. (laughs) And there was a moment moment in the movie where you see him and then you see him like unbutton his fly and the whole cinema was just like in stitches and then some people left. (laughs) So I completely understand why it's horrific, but also when it's such high concept, you can kind of put it in the part of your brain that says this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. So it's kind of okay. It's not exactly shot like Hostel, which I would have genuinely not been able to experience if if it's something Mm. that kind of gritty, but it was done in such an absurd way. So, So, but that's the kind of thing that I just can't, you know, I just can't tell my... I just can't tell my mum and dad about. Yeah, I completely understand. Yeah, um, wow, I'm sorry okay, yeah, to that's... anyone that's now picturing whatever you're picturing. I'm so sorry. I hope no one had this on their car radio while their kids were I being hope, taken to. I hope soccer Radio Three don't listen to this. Don't tell Radio Three. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, great, great, cool. But Peter, yeah, of course, like uh, an absolute modern classic. Like I, um, yeah, I still kind of dream about uh, some some of the influence of this ending up in a future Kojima game, even though I'm not totally convinced that Kojima had a big hand in in making this teaser. Yeah, a great pick. I don't think I could play a whole game with this level of intensity. (laughs) It would be hard to do structurally as well, like a whole game of this. Because, like, PT is a whole game, basically, isn't it? It's like, it takes two or three hours to finish. Yeah. Do you think, Louise, do you think they can make a whole game out of that? I I, I didn't want them to. I mean, that experience was actually... (laughs) the fact that we've all kind of built this mythology around that one experience which gave us everything we didn't need the rest of a game but i did think that there was um at one point there was a tgs preview like a of other gameplay of it which a lot of people have seen and then kind of forgotten that had really different horrific imagery in it and one bit of it that kind of made the most of that unnatural imagery was 
there was a ball hitting against a door and it was slamming against it and then it was rolling and it turned into a human head. And mm. it was th that kind of horrific stuff that I thought that maybe they could have made like a five or six hour experience, but nothing like a... You couldn't have had a giant Silent Hill of that. You wouldn't have been able to do it. And also, even if the, you know, the second or third acts of that game had been as scary as the first, by then you might be totally desensitized to it. You know, the, I think mm. these experiences do need to be quite short. Um, and unless you're doing the kind of balancing it with action stuff that Resi manages so well, I do think it's challenging to sustain a sense of terror for that long. Yeah, mm. that's a good call. Uh, so my second pick is The Glass Staircase, which is a PC game by the developer Puppet Combo, who's a really interesting developer of like B-movie style horror games, who is um, backed on Patreon of all places. And sort of like, basically, if you back the Patreon at the $10 level, I think it is, you get all of the stuff that the developer and the, the crew that works in the games makes. And this game is like a Silent Hill and Resident Evil kind of like PS1 pastiche. Like it has, um, you know, kind of blocky graphics. It's obviously like a filter on like more modern sort of renders, but you're in some kind of institution there's a lot of kind of like young women in identical dresses and you t kind of take this pill and there's like a megaphone that comes on and says like good girls take their pills and stuff like that and the girls one by one you you play as the girls one by one you leave the room that you're you're in with these girls you you wander around this house and you kind of keep exploring until basically a jump scare happens so first one occurs when you open the front door and that and just try and leave the place there's a there's a jump scare there's like a, it, it cuts on um the image cuts in on like the eyes of the main character the second one you get to like leave the building and you're in this kind of like rainy estate this very old kind of like stone building and you're wandering around this um this maze you've been told there's a package that's been sent for you and you go looking for it in this maze yeah you actually have to treat it like a maze it takes quite a while and there's like this um this quite freaky sort of synthy score playing in the background and then you find the package and the rain stops and the music turns to like drums you just hear this banging over and over again and as you try and leave the maze all of the um the routes you took to get there are blocked off and you realize that you're trapped there and you turn a corner and there is a 12 foot nemesis style monster that you run into and that's the second jump scare and then the game resets again and that jump scare i had to fucking turn the game off but um <laughs> coming back to it it has um has like resident evil style combat as well it has the old tank controls and stuff and then later on you, you kind of like using kind of conventional weapons and that's how the rest of the girl's stories uh, play out but i thought it was like a really cool powerful interesting sort of um horror experience it's only about uh 90 minutes long but have either of you heard of puppet combo is this no. kind of like gone over your head what about you louise this is new to me. I think I saw The Glass Staircase. It was a couple of years ago it came out. I think I, I seem to remember yeah. it coming out, but I, I looked at it and thought that actually looks terrifying. I should play it. And then I obviously gave myself many excuses not to because that's that, you just describing that sounds horrific. Yeah, it is. It's like it's really, really effective. I think that like for most people, you could probably I mean, there's like a commentary free walkthrough. Obviously, I encourage backing the developer and giving the developer money. But if you wanted the measure of it, it is on YouTube. You can see the bits I just described. What I described was basically the first 20 minutes of the game yeah. and then like yeah there's an hour more of that but even scarier so um yeah you, des you describing that gave me like big vibes back to being in the playground 
where people are telling you about horror. Yeah. Because that, that doesn't happen when you're an adult as much, but when you're a kid and people have seen something and it becomes like playground, sort of like urban legend, you know, you know, right back to like, I remember someone explaining like that, the concept of alien and the face hugger and it being born and all that kind of shit and it just how vivid it is when someone explains something to you and you're like oh man i've got to see this terrifying thing i suppose yeah. it's like creepypasta like, yeah right that's the kind of yeah, modern exactly. version of that because you still feel it. it's like yeah. it happened to a friend of a sister's friend's cousin all the rest of it and you read it on no sleep and you're just like i'm never going to sleep again because even though i know this is fake and someone has written it specifically to be told like this I still don't like it. Yeah, I can't. I I have nothing to do with that stuff. Like that stuff is just, it's just so cursed. I have no interest in scaring myself like that. Yeah, I like really interesting developer though. I like I like the idea that like becoming popular enough that you're backed on Patreon. Like they hit a stretch goal to like hire environmental artists basically, so they can focus on the actual uh, horror game part. The rest of them a lot. The rest of um, Puppet Combo's games are, are a bit more sort of schlocky. Like this one called sort of Murder House, where you're like, I think you're like a news crew investigating a sort of spooky house and stuff. And I think they're all fairly short. But I think Murder House actually on the Switch this week. It was um it doing a, it was a news story doing the rounds actually about like this really creepy icon on the switch home screen i don't know if you saw that during the rounds i think it was on kotaku and stuff but yeah an interesting developer uh, for sure so yeah i um I, I do recommend like at least watching it if you're not necessarily playing it but um yeah puppet Ooh. combo want to definitely um shout that out from the kind of like ps1 style horror movement that's definitely like a thing on pc matthew i'm really excited to hear about your second pick uh so next up is eternal darkness which is the nintendo published horror game survival horror game i guess it's got like some roots in a kind of resident evil style style play for the gamecube made by silicon knights but with nintendo's input one of the funniest things uh, you can find the patents for eternal darkness and it's like a lot of silicon knights people on there but also miyamoto and you can find the patent for this game's got an insanity system and it's just funny seeing like these horror mechanics broken down and Miyamoto's name on them. It's so different from what you associate with him. How much involvement he actually had, I don't know, but I love the idea that Miyamoto made like one horror game. It's a Lovecraftian sort of tale set across several thousand years where you, in the present day, visit your grandfather's house and through exploring that house, you uncover the long, dark history of the sort of family line, I guess, and how this sort of family has been sort of battling some kind of cosmic Lovecraftian horror uh, for 2,000 years. Uh, what's interesting about it is that each level you play a different a different character in a different time period, so it jumps from, so it starts at like Roman times all the way up to modern period. Each character is very different, uh, and they control differently. They've in, in terms of like, some are more action capable, you know, you play like, a fireman i think with like an axe and a machine gun in modern day but then you can also you also play sort of a a sort of monk scribe who's basically just zombie fodder and very very slow and it kind of recycles a lot as well like it jumps through history but it uses a lot of the same environments so you get to see them at different points in history and you maybe get to find out what happened at the end of certain character stories in later character stories. So structurally, it does some quite interesting stuff, especially for Nintendo, who don't tend to go heavily into like big narrative games. This has got a lot going for it. Um, 
I don't know if it's like the scariest horror game per se. You know, I always thought the Lovecraftian sort of thing is is more the the kind of impossible scale of what you're dealing with. Like it's not quite the same as a, a sort of jump scare or a, a horror that's in your face. It's more about just the how this this family line is just doomed by something bigger than itself. So it's more overwhelming than it is like genuinely frightening. It has got one of like all-time great jump scares, which I won't spoil. It's quite early in the game. Everyone who's played this game will know it. it involves the bathroom. Genuinely made me shit myself and also gave me... No, it didn't genuinely make me shit myself, I should <laughs> yeah, say. Bad use of the word genuinely there, I would say. <laughs> I, it, it, it really messed me up at the time. And I was really worried that that's what, because it came early on, that that's what the whole game is going to be. It isn't, like I say, it's more this kind of creeping dread. But the thing that really defines it is this insanity system where every time you basically meet an enemy, it saps your sanity. And, you know, if you kill them, you can earn a bit back. But the game is sort of designed that your sanity is going down one way or another. And it begins to sort of make all this weird stuff happen. The camera will begin to tilt to begin with, but it leads all the way up to these almost Kojima-ish mindfucks where like, you go into your inventory and all your items are now missing, or it'll say the control is disconnected, or it looks like the game's bugging out or glitching out, or the TV's breaking in some way, and it's kind of weird because a lot of people love that stuff, but it's also like punishment. So the weird balance in this game is that the, like, the coolest stuff you almost need to go out of your way to see, you know, you need to fail for it to happen. I think um, what's his chops from Silicon Knights, Dennis Diet came back a few years ago and tried to kickstart like a spiritual successor to this, which I'd actually really be up for. But I just don't think at the time people kind of trusted him or or, his, or the effort enough to kind of make it happen, which is a shame because this was a, a really distinct horror thing from a company not known for it. Yeah. So I missed this one at the time because I didn't have a GameCube. I do own it, but I've never actually played it. But um, Louise, is this one that you you caught in some form? No, it wasn't. I didn't play it at the time. Um, I didn't have the console. Um, I only then ended up getting a PS2. But I really, I'm with you on the cosmic horror. And now I want to just watch all of it. But I do have a question. Does the sanity meter actually work? Because do you remember, was it Amnesia of the Dark Descent? They basically admitted that you couldn't stop the nastiness from happening because it was all just a cheat. They would play with a sanity meter as and when they wanted to so that you would always get the scariest right. experience. Because I initially, you know, when you play that and you see a meter, like, I really affect this. But I guess the fact they had a patent meant the fact that it did work. But yeah, I don't think Amnesia's did. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 genuine. Like, it, it the, the meters there doing its thing. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, one of the criticisms of the game is that you almost have to, like, deliberately play badly for it to drop all the way to the bottom and like the really crazy things you know there are some things in this like you know it can go to like a fake blue screen of death and things like that if you really let it get bad and yeah so like i said i i think what it does do is i think it balances it nicely i, th- I think the you know the resources are balanced enough that you are dropping into it enough to see the system you know i definitely didn't come out the other end feeling like i had been shortchanged, but it also felt like a a genuine like mechanical concern that you had to deal with you know i think it is legit no i just wanted to say it's really interesting that like i think now that's something that horror developers need to think about is so that you don't miss those moments because like alien isolation they they basically gave a director to the alien that said that it would know what part of the ship you were on and they even put eyes on the back of its head so you could never walk behind the alien 
even though it doesn't, you don't see those eyes, right. you could never do it because basically they've created it so that it will always be as scary as possible. It always knows actually where you are and it can literally see out the back of its head just so that you always get, right. you always have the most terrifying experience possible and you can't just yeah. walk along and say, oh, it's fine, the alien wasn't programmed to walk along this section, so I'm fine. <laughs> like, I always think that's yeah. really cool. That is awesome. I think, there's, I think there's, there's, a, there's another game I'll talk about in a bit, actually, which, which has a similar balancing interest. I think there's some Japanese developers have maybe done some more legitimate experiments in like trying to make horror emerge kind of mechanically rather than scripting it Mm. i feel like this game is one of the first to be you know this feels like there's a bit of an obsession with lovecraft now in in horror games but i feel like this was less of a thing at the time and yeah Yeah, this was i think this is the first time i encountered like you know i'd heard the name lovecraft but i didn't really know what the deal was i mean for me like when you get to the end and it becomes properly lovecrafty i thought it was quite silly i find lovecraft stuff quite silly rather than scary Uh, yeah i don't really know people who are into lovecraft properly like what they get out of it you know if it's just like the iconography of it it's quite cool but I don't. Do people find it genuinely chilling? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But like, um, Dark Corners of the Earth is another sort of like um, a good early-ish uh, sort of 3D Lovecraft game. Bit of bit incomplete, but like um, very atmospheric game on PC and Xbox. So um, yeah, it was just kicking off around this time. Louise, I'm so excited to hear about your third pick. What have you got here? Well, I think we have to have one from this, and it's well, I suppose we did with PT, but it's Silent Hill Four: The Room, which. I played when I was at university and I will fully say, you know, when you're at university and you're all in your tiny little university cells and you're probably partaking in the more herbal aspects of university life. (laughs) I don't know what you're referring to. (laughs) Exactly. Suddenly, when you combine that with something like Silent Hill, the room always gets, the room is always really... It get, people were like, oh, it wasn't meant to be a Silent Hill game. It's not as scary. It's a bit weird. It was always meant to be a Silent Hill game. It's just quite different. So you are in an apartment and you basically crawl through holes in the walls and go to the strangest parts of... Uh, you go to water prisons at, full of horrific creatures. And it, it's it's genuinely... It still frightens me when I think about it now. The, the creature design, there was one called, I think it's called, I want to say the twin victim. And it's basically like a two-headed baby monster that walks around on two, two hands and points at you really slowly and then screams and runs at you. Oh, no. Like genuinely, one of the most horrific, I think, it's one of, I think it's just one of my scariest games ever. And I don't think it's necessarily because of those herbal experiences that it's they they maybe are the reason that it's still in my head you know but i do think that that game had a lot of really scary stuff in it really consistently scary stuff in it really unhinged strange designs i mean that water prison that i was talking about it was basically like a multi-layered prison of the it was just endless cells that you were going in looping circles that were ever decreasing and that's the kind of thing that taps into your head and makes you go insane regardless of having things that run after you and point and scream so and there's a few Mm. there's a few bonus scares in it that really still get me like when you're in your apartment it kind of starts off quite normal you can't go out the door it's chained but when you get sort of spat back into your apartment it begins to sort of become sort of de-evolve and become more like the places that you're crawling through the hole and it becomes the walls become dirtier chains probably more chains appear on the door or you go and you look out the peephole and there's someone just staring back at you but one Mm. of the scariest ones is you're looking into your next door neighbor's flat and every time you look through this little hole in the wall you see that robbie the rabbit 
uh, doll sitting on the bed with its back to you. But then in one of the occasions where you go, he's turned around and he's looking at you. And that's genuinely Mm -hmm. just one of the most... It's so simple. You don't need to be being chased or haunted or fighting. It's just this thing of that was like this before and now it's not like this and now I want to turn this game off. And yeah, so the the room genuinely still bothers. I, I don't think I could even replay it. Maybe I should. Maybe it would just show me that it just doesn't look great and is a bit janky and strange, but my memories of it are probably scarier than the game itself. Mm. Yeah, it's not one I actually played, but I was always fascinated by the idea of like voyeurism being like a, a you know, like a, a device you, you could use for horror in a game. Like I don't think that that has really been done that much elsewhere. But like, um, I feel like having peepholes kind of taps into that. Is that is that part of the sort of like vibe of the game? Is there like a voyeuristic aspect to it? You know, I think I almost think it's like a it's 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 kind of like just how to make a perfect bottled horror element. Mm. I think mm. it's kind of this idea of yes, we can scare you by dumping you into a world where you're chased by someone strange and you can hear gates creaking and horrible things but also that we can actually terrify you the most when you're back where you are meant to be safe. And I think it's, I suppose it's voyeuristic in the sense that you're looking out at a world that's that's trying to scare you, but I also think it's looking back at you because you're in a room that's meant to be safe. And as you progress through the game, you start like, you start lighting candles to try and ward off the things and you put them into different rooms because otherwise horrible things happen in those rooms. So you're kind of defending yourself oh, with these candles man. that you have. And it's it's an absolute <laughs> endurance it's a proper endurance of a game. And I think we played it, oh, I don't even know how many nights we played it over, but genuinely it would get to be like, is it Silent Hill time? Yes, yeah, it's, it's Silent Hill time. We've got to go and do that again. And it would just be this absolute terror fest as we sat in this breeze block cell in Stirling University. So yeah, it's it's quite the experience. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Matthew, is this one that you played? No, I, I haven't played it. You know, from what I know of it, you know, I wondered if it had some similarities with PT in terms of like a recycled, like limited domestic space that kind of horrible stuff happened in. But yeah, I just a bit too cursed for me. (laughs) Does it have those similarities? (laughs) Oh, totally. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's that taking advantage of a of a natural situation where you're meant to feel safe. And then, like, just turning it on its head and then shaking you. That's freaky. I think it is. Um, this one's been re-released on PC on GOG in recent years. Oh, so, has um, it? yeah, yeah. So I believe it's fairly easy to get hold of right now. I don't know how it runs on PC, but um, I imagine you can probably mod this to look quite nice. But um, yes, if it's anything like the other Sun Hills on PC. But yeah, great pick, Louise. That's. Uh, I should definitely play that at some point. That's cool. So my third pick is Condemned Criminal Origins, which is was an Xbox 360 launch title. You can also play on PC. It's backwards compatible on Xbox, actually. At the time I'm, uh, that we're recording this, I think it will still be um, valid by the time the episode's live, is that the um, it's £3.74 in the uh, the Xbox sale, or $5 for American listeners. So very, very cheap to, pick, uh, to get hold of. First-person horror game from Monolith, best known for the uh, No One Lif- Lives Forever games before this. and uh, Very the- different vibe. <laughs> yeah, very different vibe. And so it's like a kind of a melee-based um, first-person horror game. The optics of it aren't necessarily great. You're fighting a lot of homeless people who are kind of like amped <laughs> up on this drug. Um, you know, not sure that's like, you know, the the optics of that are fantastic, I'll be honest. But um, <laughs> I, what I really like about this game is that, okay, it is genuinely scary, but it it's the best I've seen, like, a David Fincher influence on on games. Like, it's got a very sort of 7 vibe where 
the first thing you do in the game is you're, you're like a, a police officer and like a detective, forensic detective, big sort of CSI vibes, is going into like a, a sort of like a kitchen area at a dinner table where there is a dead body of a woman opposite like a, a really fucked up looking mannequin. And then you're kind of investigating the crime scene and looking for clues. And then there's kind of like scribblings on the wall. And there's the vibe of it is just very, very similar to Seven or, um, you know, something like Zodiac, even though it's out before Zodiac. It definitely has that very distinctive, grimy, borderline horror Fincher vibe. And I think that's done really effectively. Mm. But um, this game is full of like people sort of scurrying past in the distance and you know they're going to be around a corner to try and like thump you basically and the way that people move is really quite scary and the spaces you're going in are just these really grotty kind of like um apartments and train stations and stuff and it's it just so so scary the probably the most famous section of this game is in a department store where are these there are these mannequins that start basically moving around you and mm. that section that the execution of it is so so good it's so like it's probably one of the scariest things i've encountered in the game when you hear that out loud you think oh, okay what like you know uh, just is it gonna end up being quite daft and sort of um maybe a bit bioshocky but it's actually just really fucked up and spooky i think this is this like quite chill um sort of classical music playing in the background as well and it's just an absolutely horrible section but um <laughs> probably one of the most memorable sections of a horror game that i've played louise have you got much history with this one i don't but i have played that sequence because someone said <laughs> you need to play this bit and mannequins are horrifically scary and i didn't realize i only played that in a sort of isolation and it was scary enough so i didn't realize it was actually a proper like breakdown investigation type thing as well which always makes which always makes horror so much more attractive when you're looking at it from that way because it's almost it gives you that hook of a storyline and an investigation and i think i think mm. i love a I love an investigation that way. I think there's a reason that sort of crime books are one of the biggest sellers is because we like filling in the jigsaw pieces of a story. And I actually didn't realise that that's what Condemned's wraparound was. And now I want to go play it for a 379. <laughs> yeah, it's really like, it gets really, really silly on that side. But it's a kind of like a way into a horror experience. It is really effective, like you say. It's kind of like a real world grounding. And uh, yeah, that section, like, I would recommend, even if you don't want to play it at home, watch that section on YouTube and just be like dazzled by how fucking terrifying it is. It's really, really good. Mm. It's not that far into the game, I would say, either. You Only a couple of hours to get to that bit. So um, yeah, what about you, Matthew? You played this one? Yeah, yeah. T too scary, though. Uh, I don't think I finished this game because it was just, uh, you know, that's the dread of having to progress in it kind of over, over, yeah, over balanced out the, the, the kind of enjoyment of, of that progression. Not to say it's bad or anything, it's just, it's, it's, it's super full on. Um, probably also worth a little shout out for Monolith's Fear series. It's the same Monolith, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, different a different team, I think, but yeah, same developer. Yeah, which you know, we, uh, you know, for a first person shooter, you know, very action heavy. The Fear series, also the particularly the first one, super effective kind of use of like J horror tropes to to have some proper scares in it. I think uh, they've got a pretty good record of this monolith. Yeah, but now they make uh, Middle Earth, Shadow of War, and <laughs> and Tolkien <laughs> games, which is really bizarre. But um, yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. That was um, they were really really good at this stuff um, around mm. this time, particularly. So uh, yeah, Condemned, an interesting uh, sort of little series. But yeah, I think because it's because it's first person horror, um, it holds up pretty well. It's not that dated, and because it's like early HD graphics, it's almost a kind of like VHS effect to playing something that's a little bit blurry and kind of like muddy and weird. Mm. I certainly got that vibe this week. So 
Matthew, what is your third pick? Uh, so I've picked Fatal Frame 4, which was the Wii exclusive Fatal Frame, um, also known as Project Zero in some parts of the world. This was never released outside of Japan, but handily there is a English language patch for this. So if you own a Wii and you can import a copy of Fatal Frame 4, you can get this patch and play the whole game. Um I'm not going to claim to be any big Fatal Frame expert or know where this necessarily sits in the series. So, you know, there may be a better Fatal Frame. I I think there's a lot of love for Fatal Frame 2, but I wanted to include it as a nod to the series. This is the Tecmo, originally Tecmo, now Tecmo Koei series, where you fight ghosts with a magical camera, which is very, very silly. Um, but the whole mechanic of it is that you kill ghosts by taking a picture of them and there's this tremendous risk-reward element to it in that the closer the ghost gets, the better you've framed it, the more damage you've done. So, you know, the you're basically encouraged to let them get as close as you possibly can. You know, basically you want to wait for them to lunge and really get up in your grill. And a lot of these ghosts, you know, they're, they're kind of lank-haired girls a la ring and they kind of obscure their faces, and it's not until the very last minute that the kind of true horror of their their like twisted faces is, is kind of revealed. So you have to wait for it to be them at their very scariest to really like nail them. In motion, it's a little. It looks a little arcadey, you know, to have this camera that you're kind of reloading with film as as ammo, basically, to kind of snap these ghosts. But it's really, really effective, especially if you are into that kind of... If you are spooked by those J-horror tropes, which, you know, for me, that's the stuff that gets me more than anything. I just find it so unnatural and, you know, the concept of ghosts I don't find particularly scary. But for some reason, combined with these, like, Japanese designs, it's, it's just absolutely horrendous. This game looks beautiful. Really, really gorgeous step up. They kind of did the Resident Evil 4 shift with Fatal Frame 4, where it stops being kind of fixed camera angles and is over the shoulder, which just means it's a bit more playable. Annoyingly, like I say, it's quite hard to play this. Interestingly, there was a sequel. There's Fatal Frame 5 was a Wii U exclusive, which is Maiden of the Dark Water, and that's just about to be re-released on PC, X, but basically everything. I think it's even on Switch. It's on Switch too. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's, you know... They're fundamentally the sort of the same thing in terms of you're in a quite a traditional Japanese environment and you have this ghost combat which defines the series. I think there's quite minor tweaks that maybe separate one game from the other in terms of quality. Um, four is the one that I've played and know the best, so that's why I've included it. More as a shout out for the whole series. It also has this really goofy mechanic where you have to pick up items. You have to hold the A button to reach your arm out to grab them. And if you let go of the air, you retract your arm. And the whole thing is, is as you're, it, it lets you do those horror film moments where you're kind of slowly easing your hand into a crack and you're like, is something going to grab me? Is something not going to grab me? Which, when I was watching videos of it back, it looks really silly. But I, at the time, really shat me up. Uh, I thought it was a, a brilliant representation of that kind of classic moment in a horror film, of that kind of creeping dread of slowly pulling back the curtains, but you've got to hold the button to pull back the curtains. I love all that shit. I thought this is great. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. I um, yeah, I think this is probably this was like a coveted kind of import game at the time. I remember because it's got Grasshopper involved, right? Goichi Suda's the um, director of this one. Yeah. So yeah, an interesting pick, and uh, like you say, not easy to get hold of. So it's um. 
cool to have you talk about it. Hopefully, they'll find some way to get this onto modern formats if they're doing um, they're doing the other one. But um, I guess we'll see. Mm. What about uh, you in this series, Louise? Is it, did you play any of the Fatal Frame games on PS2? I think I played Fatal Frame Two. Was that Crimson Butterfly? Is that the yeah? So I think I played that one. And genuinely, you're just absolutely right. It's that idea. It's that risk reward thing of having to have them come so much closer. To, in order to actually damage them which I find really terrifying because obviously games teach you that the minute something appears you just hit fire <laughs> but actually you're yeah. like no the scary thing has to come really close to you I'm totally with you on I think that was my first kind of experience of J-horror properly um, right and that was around I think maybe did I see it before before I saw the remake of The Ring which was kind of my first J-horror movie experience so I think seeing this experience of such like they had those i think you would go into rooms and i feel like i'm not i hope this was the game where you would go into a room and you would maybe see like feet poking out from under like curtains in the corner and there would just be weird hauntings that were happening around and you kind of had to wait until those perfect moments to snap the camera until they revealed themselves but there was just this absolute sense of complete dread and i think the alienness uh, the sort of alien nature of japanese horror means it's intrinsically terrifying it still scares me mm. the, that ring imagery the, the sort of there's a real obsession with hair and it getting in mouths and just there, there's a very interesting physicality to those even the way those those sort of spirits move and i feel like they were all kind mm-hmm. of tied into sort of traditional japanese spirits as well so it was all very it felt very real for a game that had such a silly you know that had such a yeah. silly task and even then it doesn't feel so silly when you're going into a room. You know, that all disappears, that all, that all sheds away. Yeah. So I do feel like when I played that, it, I don't even think I finished the game. So I'm actually really excited to play The Maiden of Blackwater on Switch because I bet, I bet it's got motion controls that means you can control the camera with your Joy-Cons. Yeah, because in the Wii U one, the Wii U controller was the, the camera. camera. Yeah. You had to hold it up and, and you know, you got a separate viewfinder on it. So that was that was quite nicely done. Yeah, I just, yeah. Good, 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 spooky series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of gorgeous as well. Just really beautifully made. Yeah, just right around the time of that uh, sort of J horror boom in the early noughties, I suppose the series was just sort of spot on, um, kind of accompaniment to that. But um, yeah, what's your fourth pick, Louise? My fourth pick is Outlast. No, mm. <laughs> Outlast does the thing that so much horror does, where it says, "Hey, night vision's scary, isn't it?" <laughs> so you <Yeah. laughs> arrive at Mount Massive Asylum as a journalist that's been sent a letter from a whistleblower, and of course, you decide to go at night because that's that's the <laughs> correct time to go, or without anyone else, or without telling anyone else that you're going. And you kind of you're even the I think the introduction to Outlast might be again one of my favourite scariest gaming experiences simply because you know how badly it's going to go like you're driving along this really sort of overgrown road and you're kind of going over potholes and your your headlight lamps don't really light up enough of the road and then you get to this gatehouse where you find some batteries for your camera that you're taking in it's like oh and it's teaching you how to use night vision and this is when you're outside and you've got this like hulking mass of this asylum just on the horizon and you're like oh i'm going in there great and you arrive at it and the front door won't open and you're like, of course it won't open. Why don't we just go home for tea? Like you've got all these pushing forward on the horror tropes of you're going to have to keep going, but you really don't want to. And you don't want to know what we're going to do with this horrific night vision mechanic that we've just given you and these batteries that are going to run out. So by the time you actually enter the asylum through a window that's clearly been used as an escape, like you can see that it's been the there's been like boarded up windows that have been slammed out from the inside for something to get out, and you're going in, and the minute you go in, 
the lights just go out and it just because it's about i think it's five or six hours and it does get quite absurd by the end i don't love the end but the first few hours of outlast where it's just so glossy and hollywood and rich as you're exploring this sort of first person asylum and constantly having to use your night vision and and kind of worrying about whether you're going to end up stumbling around in the dark and i think it actually does that quite masterfully it makes sure that you constantly do find enough batteries so as long as you're not constantly got the night vision on you're actually going to be okay you're not going to be left but they they're limited enough that you mentally feel like you're never quite ready which i suppose is what survival horror does it gives you the odd bullet etc but i think outlast just does that so well so by the time you're chased by the horrific inhabitants of the asylum you're already sort of ramped up to absolutely it's that winnie the pooh thing again you're absolutely ramped up to anything could be chasing you and it would be the scariest thing ever but although i say that i fixated on winnie the pooh as a horror icon well (laughs) you know thomas the tank is obviously the horror icon that we all love yeah yeah. so i really think winnie the pooh could really have a have a career in this as a mod (laughs) horror um but yeah i think outlast ticks all my creepy boxes um i yeah i didn't so much love outlast 2 um, it was full of unnecessary chasey stuff. But the worlds that Red Barrels build are really horrifying. They love their horror and you can feel that they love their horror. You know, you can feel as you look down a corridor and you see a someone standing at the end with sort of eyes glowing or just a wheelchair there. And you know that they're all kind of big horror tropes, but it doesn't make mm. them any less terrifying. So I think it it deftly handles horror tropes to make you feel like you're in hell basically and it's really really good at it Mm, yeah i feel like this um this arrived right around the time that like um you know i think amnesia preceded it but like there was this boom in first person horror i suppose i'm curious about what you made of that movement the kind of thing that led to like slender man and then on the high end like alien isolation do you think this is like the um a good starting point for people who are kind of intrigued in that that side of horror I think it is a really good starting point. It's a really strong one because there was a, there's been a lot of clones since, and I think it's also very tied into the like YouTube and watching scary experiences yeah. on YouTube and watching people react to scary things on YouTube. Um, I think a lot of people came to these games, especially Slenderman and Amnesia: The Dark Descent, even through streamers and through YouTube, and that became a, pe- a sort of place for people to share these experiences because actually sometimes it can be too much playing them on your own. I don't find them particularly always particularly pleasant to experience on your own, but if you're watching someone and you're going through it with them, it's kind of like that lovely sort of childhood thing of playing with a sibling or a friend. So I think these mm-hmm. games really lend themselves really well to uh, playing together because they're almost they're played for screams for laughs, you know, and I think sometimes it can become a bit grim otherwise especially there's some really scary dlc for outlast which is i think it's the whistleblower and there's some really Mm. horrible disturbing characters in that that i would always rather experience with someone else because of how scary it is so i think there's this is the real high point um and there, there was a lot that came after it that was just a bit of a clone and also the thing that outlast also balances which actually the sequel initially didn't before they updated it was insta fail chase sequences which i hate um Mm. i think horror games should be able to steer us through narrative experiences without making us frustrated Um, and i don't think that necessarily means that they have to be super easy but i do think there needs to be a point where you're hungry for the next scare but this one isn't scaring you anymore you know the new amnesia rebirth dealt with that really well so if you died in amnesia rebirth you would be kind of dropped into a sort of randomized point before it and it would almost 
sort of help you dodge it if you wanted to. So if you, you wouldn't basically mm. hammer your head against a wall to try and get through it because they would kind of auto autocorrect you so that you would still be scared, but you would never feel furious about it because you would just want to get on with the experience. And I don't think... I think you, you could be able to turn that on and off if you wanted, if you wanted that sort of nightmarish, I just want to stealth through everything. But I think horror games should equally be able to take you on that journey to pull you forward and let you experiences, experience those scares without repetition. So I think Outlast actually mm. does that quite well, which surprised me that the sequel didn't initially. But they, yeah, as I say, they did they did change it to make it a little less chase heavy. Mm. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, great pick. I've still never played that one, but um, yeah, I should I should at some point, given considering all the games I've played that were inspired by it or uh, borrowed from it, I feel like this is a key game that leads to probably um, you know Resident Evil going third, first person, for example. Yeah. So um, yeah, mm. significant. Cool. So my fourth pick is um, Stories Untold. So this is the uh, game by No Code, a uh, studio set up by John McKellen, I think it is, who um, worked on Alien Isolation, the um, UI elements of that game. And I, I kind of wanted to spotlight the first episode here, because if people haven't played Stories Untold, it's, it's very cheap to get hold of, very easy to get hold of. But if you want to just play the first episode, it's available as a demo on Steam. And it's um, the scariest and most memorable of the episodes, I would say. It's called The House Abandoned. It's, uh, you're playing a text adventure within the game. And there's John Carpenter-esque uh, horror music playing in the background. And what goes on um, around you in the sort of game world is corresponding to what's happening in the text adventure inside the game. It's very, very cool. Very, very effective. The other episodes definitely have like um, big memorable moments too. But um, I think this is just a, a fantastic singular one simple idea done perfectly and yeah i was i was kind of really fond of of it and obviously that studio has gone on to make uh, observation and is now working on a kind of full-on horror game with annapurna interactive which is really cool i look forward to seeing how that that pans Ooh. out but um yeah stories untold just uh yeah just i I, I was on pc gamer when this came out and we were like we're all kind of excited about it it hit right, right around the time of stranger things as well and they kind of like they were riffing on similar 80s um sort of influences um, has kind of like opening credit sequences and stuff. So um, yeah, yeah. I suppose then, um, Matthew. I'm sure you've played this one, right? I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast yeah. before. Yeah, were you yeah, fond of yeah, stories I, untold? Yeah, I, I really liked it. Um, I think I liked them more. Is that the, the, I wasn't wild about the final episode and the way it kind of brings them together, but I, I liked the sort of the standalone elements. I thought they were all super distinct, just very, um, just really well executed and and uh, very well observed. Yeah, individually. I think my favourite one is the the one with the like the listening station. The um, thing the thing style one. Like yeah, yeah. Where you're kind of sort of tuning into all the different sort of wavelengths and trying to decipher the sort of technology of it. Yeah, I, I thought this was great. I know I've 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 got so much time for the for, for this lot and whatever they do going forwards. I think they've they've just got a really like singular style. Um yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, it doesn't take long to fire through this one. Is this one you played, Louise? Yeah, well, I've played the first of the... I've played The House Abandoned, which I find really scary. Um, I find mm. its kind of multi-layered nature particularly scary um, because you were the one playing, but also playing... Else. It's, it's, it's kind of like playing Seption, and it makes you think about what's behind you. So suddenly you become very aware of yourself, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, you You have a real sense of... You have a real sense of, oh, I'm sitting with my back to the room and I have a set of headphones on 
um and there are things happening here that i don't like um so yeah i really i don't want to spoil too much about but i really i really enjoy that 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 particular show and it's also it's just a really clever way of of reflecting horror back at us really it's uh, and it's very very smart stuff yeah it's cool the idea of using a kind of like retro style game inside the game to evoke the particular time period they're going for is just really um well done and they obviously think very carefully about things like uh, visual filters and color and like the props on the table and stuff like that yeah. it's all just really really well thought out and it's a kind of slow building re- realization that what is going on around you as a player is is corresponding to what's going on in the game itself it's just yeah fantastic stuff so matthew what's your fourth pick uh, my fourth pick is the evil within which again is maybe more of an action sort of survival horror game than it is outright horror you know like a few things on my list you know resi and uh, eternal darkness it's got a similar it's, you know it's 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 almost too full-on to be properly kind of like uh sort of scare inducing i think this has like this amazing intensity to it which i think is a bit love or hate compared to resident evil 4 it's a lot more full-on you know it's it's almost you know it's another i should say it's another uh, shinji mikami game um it's the first game he made with tango gameworks which is the studio he sets up once he's parted ways with um capcom and made his game with platinum and i i guess the best way to describe it is kind of like resident evil 4 but maybe meets like the saw aesthetic in that it's just a bit more full-on there's a bit more body horror you know there's lots of barbed wire it's very like aggressive and in your face it's quite difficult and quite long so i'd say it's it's a more intense playing experience in resident evil 4 it's quite grueling which some people don't react to but don't react well to uh, but i think it has this i think it really puts you through the the, the kind of ringer in a way that you know some great horror films do you know it's not necessarily about scares but just this sort of relentless pressure on you and when it occasionally releases that pressure you know when you get to the save rooms which in this game are kind of marked out they play the Claire de Lune uh, piece of music so when you hear that music you're sort of flooded with this kind of relief that you're gonna have a break from this this relentless kind of onslaught of action that's really really effective that kind of constant kind of um sort of application of pressure and then easing it off i think is is brilliantly done and the thing i mentioned earlier about you know more mechanical based horror and maybe he i think he does this in resident evil 4 as well but uh you know i remember reading about the evil within it's it's got a very careful balancing system where it like rebalances the resources in the world like on the fly based on how you're doing to make sure it keeps you in that difficult spot you know if you're really struggling it will maybe give you more ammo if you've got juicy ammo it won't give you the good stuff you know it it, it constantly keeps you in that place very very effectively which is quite a mccarmy touch like i always associate him with sort of mechanics and sort of gameplay ideas first and that that feels like one of his it's also got this really great thing which is maybe harks back to resident evil one remake in that um, some of the bodies will get back up once you've killed them unless you burn them. So there's this extra like resource risk-reward element of, like, should I use my precious you know, matches to burn this body or that body? You know, Do I think this one's going to get up and give me more trouble? Can I maybe engineer combat scenarios where I knock down multiple people at once and can set them all alight with a single match? That, to me, is like a, a very kind of classic Mikami-ish idea of just trying to stretch what you have far... Um, 
it's just a shame that the game's got like an absolute bullshit story like it's complete nonsense um very very confusing but as a as an action romp it's uh i really really rate the evil within yeah i always thought i would love this uh because it just seemed on paper oh it's you know mccarmy returning to survival horror after making vanquish but it just wasn't a game i loved i think like the story yeah. was maybe part of it it felt like it was kind of a a sort of sequence of non-connected imagery in some ways yeah uh, um, and it kind of is yeah for, for like bullshit reasons <laughs> <laughs> um is this what you played louise i didn't finish it i'm afraid for the story based reasons but i think that yeah. that combo of imagery is spot on that it is saw it's all spinning blades like especially that intro as well it has a really powerful intro where you kind of that's that you sort of wake up hanging upside down and having to hide from a horrific butcher in the most Mm. I, I think the the visuals of that sequence especially that the horrific nature of where you've woken up and how you have to kind of stealth through its proper heart and mouth stuff but i think and then sort of i think that's the one where you're at one point kind of you, you don't really have function of your leg and you're kind of sort of staggering through this bit that's now got spinning blades and someone's chasing you so it's just like yeah. we're going to hit you with everything <laughs> the entire kitchen sink yeah. and you're not going to be able to run properly but it lost me and i think again those that limitation, that risk of will I use my matches now? That completely, that completely worked for me, and also didn't because again I would always feel like oh, I have to go back in to that world, which just hates me. And I felt I felt like it really didn't yeah. like me at all. But I loved the um because that was it had sixteen by nine bars, didn't it? The Evil Within, which they yeah, took yeah. away so for the they, sequel, they patched them out, or you could turn them off later yeah. on. But yeah, at the start you had to play with them. But yeah. that felt nice. Mm. Like I loved that idea mm. of an interactive movie. That's like an extra element of we know that you like this kind of thing as a movie, see how you deal with actually being in being in control of it. So I like those bars. Um, mm. But I, I do think it's full of night. I mean, the creature design, the boss design in it is horrifying. Like the sort of yeah. the weird boxes and chains and the real monstrosities and nastiness. So it's yeah. weird to say that that's the thing I like about it, but I, the game itself as an experience wasn't, I, I couldn't, it was an endurance rather than a, ooh, what will happen next? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a certainly an interesting pick and one of the only real kind of like big budget horror games that happened in the last generation. So um along with its sequel. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, good uh, good one to have in there even if I really hated that boss battle where that girl who follows you around that little room and you got to set her on fire and shoot her. I hate that <laughs> boss battle so much, Matthew. But um, <laughs> I should play it again at some point, though. I think um, it was an interesting uh, debate that the Black Bars triggered about, you know, a director's intent versus, like, what the players demand. I thought that was um, that was interesting. And, Ooh. yeah, stylistically, it was certainly um, it was certainly cool. I think people were just paranoid that he was trying to pare down the resolution because the game wasn't very well optimised. But, um, anyway, <laughs> enough about that. So, Louise, what's your final uh, pick here? I'm really excited to talk about this one. My final pick, because it's actually perfect for horror movies too, is Friday the 13th, The Game. So Friday the 13th, The Game is another of the now very popular asymmetrical horror experiences um, where you are either playing as one of the camp counsellors or you are playing as Jason Voorhees, everyone's favourite masked mummy's boy. Um, But I think the thing I really love about Friday the 13th is exactly how much the developers clearly love the movies. They have created these perfect recreations of Camp Crystal Lake over the years and everything is everything is perfect. Everything in the cabins is perfect. Everything, every single, you know, every pool of light underneath uh, a street lamp in the middle of the woods is just exactly as it would be in the movies. And then they just layered Friday the 13th on top of it. So where games like 
Dead by Daylight, which is obviously very, very popular, but it basically reskins the same scenario of relight, restart all these generators and you'll get out. And that's literally what Dead by Daylight still is. Meanwhile, Friday the 13th is a genuine Friday the 13th experience. So it's simple. Jason is killing the camp counsellors and the camp counsellors need to escape. But there are multiple ways to escape. So you can fix the boat or you can call the police. And there's all these really interesting rules in it as well. So if someone has been killed, then if someone... uh, performs a particular act or gets to Jason's mother's house you can re- resurrect characters it's just got so many it implements the theme of the movies so perfectly into actual gameplay so you, even your camp counsellors which who fit into very clear tropes you know you've got your jock you've got your cheerleader you've got your nerd but their you know their their strengths and their weaknesses are directly correlated to their to their trope so the jock jock is obviously really strong and he can run for longer but at the same time maybe he's actually secretly really afraid of the dark and he's not very good at x y and z so i think that what they did was perfectly translated that and the minute you start playing with friends it's just the best thing because it's got um proximity audio so if you're playing as jason and you kind of you're wandering through and you can't see anyone or you're using your special abilities which it even has special abilities for each of the jasons depending on which jason you're playing as so whether it's part three (laughs) or part four you've got a slightly different mask and you've got a different weapon maybe it's not a machete it's like a um like a fishing spear so it all fits perfectly to it but if you're walking through the woods and all of a sudden you can suddenly hear your friends like, oh no, hide in here, do this, do that. And suddenly you become Jason. You are not just playing as something with a mask and a machete, but suddenly you can hear them and you hear your friends as prey. And I think that's kind of boils down just the epitome of what a slasher game can be. And it just does it so mm. effortlessly. Even if there's a really cheesy cutscene at the start, which you know has quite unrealistic graphics graphical faces shall we say but oh i was gonna say they've got like quite funny screaming faces they have interesting faces but at the same time (laughs) like they did full mocap of kane hodder who was the guy who played jason for three four five six and seven so they got him to mocap actual deaths from the series like the sleeping bag death or all of these things or there's literally a death in it where he punches a hole through someone's chest and then looks through the gap like it's funny and silly (laughs) But it's also massive fan service. And actually, now I'm thinking about it. I went, to, they were showing it off at E3 one year, and Kane Hodder was there. And I actually have a picture of me with Kane Hodder with his hand around my throat, which now I think about it, it's not a great shot. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, you just pretend to strangle me. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, there's so much love in it. And I think that's what, that, I think that's what people really connect with is the fact that they feel that horror love and they feel part of it. And it doesn't feel cheap, it feels genuine which is something that mm. people really, really sort of attach themselves to. Well, why do you think this type of horror experience has really taken off in recent years, Louise? I think the idea of asymmetrical horror is interesting. Knowing that if you were playing Alien Isolation, for instance, and knowing that your friend was the alien, I think knowing that someone who is real is doing the hunting makes all the difference. And especially if that person's your friend. <laughs> you know, I think that mm. being on edge for that kind of thing. And I also think, you know, as much as I, I sounded like I was being mean about Dead by Daylight, they've had some really interesting DLC editions. You can obviously play as Ghostface or you can, there's a Silent Hill experience and there's all of these ways that people can now interact with the things that they love by the medium of an asymmetrical horror experience. And I know why people love it, but I think there's just the rise of, again, people 
viewing on Twitch. People love watching Dead by Daylight. That's one of the most viewed because actually a lot of people don't like playing horror games. So mm. watching horror games or even playing with friends kind of blunts that kind of sharp edge a bit which I think is really important. I, I love the idea of um, you recapturing like all of the beats of a horror movie in the form of a multiplayer game. That's um, yeah, that's brilliantly conceived. I should play that at some point. I think I got it on PS Plus at some point, maybe. They, or, it's, yeah. it's sad because they lost the license. There was license uh-huh. issues, so they didn't add any more. It's fine. The servers are still live, as far as I can remember, but they've just never added anything else because that went away. But rumour is that gun media is making a texas chainsaw massacre game it's the rumor um that's there's been a few i think leatherface Mm -hmm. the game.com was registered to gun media at some point so maybe that's a maybe it's a fake out but if they're doing that if if what they did with friday the 13th is anything to go by their version of texas chainsaw will be really interesting yeah for Mm. sure that's really cool cool so uh, my final pick for this episode is no players online which is a free game set inside a haunted multiplayer first-person shooter server. So it's really straightforward, quite short. I think you'll finish it in about 10 minutes. But like, it's kind of like a catch-the-flag map. 90s-style, quake-infused sort of game. It has all the kind of different trappings of a, of a first-person multiplayer shooter. You kind of walk the flag back and forth, and you start to notice a figure in this empty map. And kind of what emerges there's a a a sort of plot based reason for what is going on but the very simple effect of this there are no other players here except me and there's but there is something else here is really really effective and clever but the reason i picked this is because when it got popular the developers built an arg to expand the experience so the game you finish the game you find out a kind of twist and then it 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 sort of moves on but then they started like playing around with it so its developers would hint that entering the konami code in the game would let players see other endings and players discovered that they could make an eye appear in the sky and um (laughs) shooting the eye uh with your gun um cut to a video of a person's um hand drawing arrows with a pencil and so there were these like mysterious kind of like um, arrows. And then um, if you then entered the arrows that you saw on screen in your keyboard, a PNG would be saved to your desktop. You'd open the PNG and the PNG would have a date in it. And on this date, the developers added an email address to the game's um, itch page. And um, emailing that gave you a spooky auto reply from the fictional developer of the game. <laughs> now, in his signature... There was a link to a GeoCities uh, looking um, itch page for an unknown game called I. So you um, you download I, and it's a game about walking a dog that you can't see down uh, down this dark path. Um, you kind of you have the leash, and you see the leash going out into the distance, and you follow um, uh, you follow the the dog down the path until you come to a dock. And at the dock, it's pitch black, and if you walk off the edge of the dock, the screen goes red. And no players online come appears back inside the game, and like a video plays and offers another clue for no players online. And if you can decipher that clue, then you can see the real ending to the the first game, no players online. So it's like a a completely different game on itch, basically unlocks the ending to this this first game mm-hmm. and. It escalated because at first they just it was a, it was a game jam game no players online they were like oh wouldn't it be cool if a multiplayer server was 
that was haunted. But then um, a Discord server was set up to start deciphering all of these clues. So this, everything I just described, that un- that unfolded over a series of like days and weeks. The game took four days to make, but the ARG took them six days to make. And there was like um, there was an element where there was a real life clue. There was like a sign attached to like um, a tree in a park in Belgium, and people went and found it. And <laughs> basically, like um, the, your reward for it is going to the secret developer room, which is really fucking weird in um, in No Players Online. And I just love the idea that it was like one cool game that they attached to like another game, and then built this whole kind of like extended horror experience around it and and as a player like diving into that whole conspiracy was one of the most immersive horror experiences i've had so i wrote a pc mm. gamer feature about it actually which i'll link when this episode goes out so i don't expect either of you have played this but i wanted to kind of talk about that whole experience because it was just really really cool and fundamentally the idea of a you know if you think of a map like halo's blood gulch and the idea that there could be like a, a you know a, a horror kind of like entity in there somewhere it's a really powerful idea so Mm. no players online that's um one i wanted to flag (laughs) any thoughts on that one i now want to read your feature on it it sounds incredible i literally i heard i think i heard sort of talk of it especially the sort of arg element and watching it go by but i never i never experienced it directly but i love i suppose all args especially if it's a horror one suddenly makes things significantly more interesting and again what you say about imagining something awful on a map that you know the idea that something is hiding somewhere is kind of that ultimate horror of the unknown so that sounds really cool Mm, yeah it was certainly um certainly a cool experience it it was a really hard feature to write because i had to try and like trace the order of how people deduced what was going on and that was like tough but um it's interesting because one of the developers lurked in the discord and clues that people thought that they, they thought it would take weeks to solve they solved in like hours just because that's what like um people who are obsessed with this stuff kind of like reddit style detectives are kind of um are all about mm. um related it's worth watching the film under the silver lake for um for a, a bit more on that sort of side of things but yes so no players online that's what i wanted to flag but um mm-hmm. matthew what's your final pick oh so my final pick um, i'm gonna put my hand up and say i haven't played a huge amount of this because it i found it too scary <laughs> but i picked phasmophobia which is a online cooperative ghost identification game so you're not ghostbusters but you 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 and i think it's up to four i think it's a group of four of you go into buildings and your job is to identify what kind of spirit is haunting it and you have a series of tools which you take in with you things like thermometers and um a crucifix and a little sort of spirit box thing and a Ouija board and all this kind of stuff. And you have to apply these tools to the house to try and work out the ghost behaviour and then kind of look into your little... You've got like a little encyclopaedia of what different ghosts will do. A bit like the Witcher bastery, really. Um, and you have to go in and then work out what ghost is in it. And that's, that's it. You don't fight the ghost. You just have to identify it and get out. But when you're in the house, uh, the more you're... You sort of interact with it, and the longer you spend in there, you begin to sort of attract the ire of the ghost, and it may begin to hunt you. And so it it occupies this sort of terrifying space of there's just nothing there. It's completely empty. You can't really see anything, but you are kind of upsetting this thing, and the sense of... Uh, you know, it definitely has to be played in co-op, but the the sense of 
being in this house and trying to kind of communicate, uh, I should say, w- one of the very clever mechanics in it is that, they, you know, you can't just talk over voice chat in the game. You have to sort of buzz in on your radio over like a like walkie-talkie type system. And so everything you hear is just like little blasts of staticky speech from your friends, you know, a bit like Louise was saying with with being able to hear like the the counselors in Friday the 13th it creates this incredibly realistic soundscape of that you're in this house and you're just hearing like crackly versions of real friends saying you know I'm going into the bathroom and you're downstairs and you're like okay I'm going into the basement and all this kind of stuff and it it just sounds so much like you're in a horror film. It's such an accurate version of the scene we've seen a thousand times. And it, I think, I, you know, like I say, I haven't played a huge amount of this. I wonder if it works brilliantly because I don't really know how it works properly. And, you know, it's in early access. People are kind of picking away at it, like working out the rules of this world. And it's sort of fun in its ambiguities of like, you know, is this working? Isn't this working? And while you're like puzzling all that out, it can really creep up on you and give you a horrible scare. Like one of these ghosts emerges. You know, I I will say that when I played, so I played this with with uh, Rich Stanton, friend of the show, <laughs> yet to appear on the show, and I was I became legitimately convinced that the game had recorded Rich's voice. <laughs> And was using it to lure me into a room. This this didn't happen. This isn't something the game can do. But that's the kind of head mind space it puts you into. Where I was in a room and then I heard just Rich's voice say, don't turn around. And I genuinely couldn't turn. I was frozen in the corner, looking into the corner, thinking, if I turn around, there's going to be a ghost in this room. I was so scared. And Rich had to come basically save me (laughs) and say there's nothing in there. It is so effective at putting you in this space to really scare yourself. Like that's it's it's kind of genius and awful. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked to learn that I own this, and um, now feels like a good time to play it around. Sort of Halloween. It's got a big Steam player base. Um, Louise, I'm guessing this is one you know fairly well. Yeah, this is a horrifically scary game, and in the way that <laughs> so you are obviously you sort of ghost hunting, and the idea that you not only need to identify what ghost is in there using the tools that you have, like, like as Matthew was saying, but, like, but there's like a book that you take in which has like gets writing in it, so you know which room the ghost was in. But it, you need to identify what type of ghost it is. But also they all do different things. So I played with mm-hmm. Matthew Elliott, um, and we were actually I think we were playing as kind of a let's play type thing. So actually we didn't use the walkie talkies. We were actually just playing. But what it meant was we arrived at this this horrible farmhouse. And we'd grabbed our gear and our torches and all the rest of it. And you can even get a sort of nice found footage feel by there's a camera that you can take in and then you can watch the camera from your like the safety of your haunting kit van, which is fun. Yeah, but um, yeah. Matt and I were going into this house and he went in first. The door slammed because this particular ghost likes to split you up. The door slammed and all I could hear in my ears was Matt screaming. Because the ghost was killing him. But I was just outside. And it was genuinely horrifying. Because it, it does do that perfect thing of, you know that you're going to be haunted, but you don't know how. But the, it's, it feels properly, the ghosts are really vindictive and horrible. So then eventually, when I could actually get into the room, um, Matt was lying dead at the bottom of the stairs. 
<laughs> and it was just like, oh, okay. And when people die, they actually go into like the spirit world. So they, they're just kind of wandering around in this sort of white version of the world that you're also in. So they can kind of help and they can kind of see the ghosts sometimes as well. So again, like that situation where you were looking into the corner and you didn't want to turn around because sometimes it is there because they've it's separated you from everyone. And it's mm. it's that idea of... I think you go in with all that expectation again of when you're playing Alien, you know that you've got 30 years of cinematic experience of Alien behind you. You go into this sort of haunting thing because we've all watched those stupid paranormal hunting ghost shows like Most Haunted or where people just go, oh, what was that? (laughs) But suddenly the minute you're in that, it doesn't feel as hokey and silly anymore. It feels really, really it feels really intense and you're playing with all the same toys that you've seen people use before Mm. and having that relatability is what makes it so scary because I think it's one guy that's made it which is amazing really and I think he's brought in a version that you can actually play single player because the other later levels in it I think you actually have to play um, with people I don't think it's even possible to do it if you're on your own so I think he's actually brought in single player Um, but just going in there with friends and being prepared to be terrible because it's also in VR I've not played it in VR that would be horrific. Oh, God, um, no way. <laughs> horror in VR again is a completely different step that I just don't like to take. I mean, I started what Resident no. Evil Seven on PSVR. I think I got in maybe ten minutes, and I was like, "I'm going to tell myself that it's because I feel sick. It's not because I feel sick. I feel sick with fear. I cannot do this." <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think um, phasmophobia is just this genuinely acutely terrifying experience which i think can only get yeah. better because it's in early access and he's, he's only going to yeah. work harder on it and i think it's really developed a really strong community as well which is always so important it's mm. it's just evil it's so evil <laughs> that thing where you can talk to the ghost you've got like these can ghost you spots me? you can ask it questions yeah. and you're like are you in the room and then it will be like hate <laughs> yeah because it tracks your microphone the whole time so you don't actually want to speak because some of them are like it doesn't like people so you don't want to talk because it will just come for you faster yeah Ugh. that's what's scary about it it's playing with people who know it. i think you almost have to be introduced to it by someone who knows it as well because it's got a few like weird sort of idiosyncrasies in 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 some of the gadgets the controls or are a nightmare i don't know if they've been fixed but i spent ages putting stuff down and picking stuff up and not being able to do it while being whispered to by a ghost <laughs> Yeah, but playing because when I played with Rich, like Rich properly gets into it, and he's really like because you don't want to speak too loudly because that will attract the ghost. So he's like whispering very calmly. He's like, "Everyone needs to come upstairs now." And then you're like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> you know what's going on up there? <laughs> it really freaked me out. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh man, I should play this. I like. I, I bought it with the intention of playing the VR one, then basically just made myself too scared by the thought of it, and so um, it sat on my desktop. But uh, yeah, I don't know. How, what's the kind of optimal like number of people you need to play this one? Um, uh, I don't know if it like you see, different size levels need different numbers of people. Like I've 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 played it with just Rich and had a really really good time. But I think we've also played it with like the full group of four, and it was. There's just more. You, there's just like more going on with four people. Mm. I think it just works two upwards, really. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, like doing but, an escape room or something. Yeah. yeah, definitely with a friend though. Like, I don't think randos would necessarily do it because I think you need to have like people who are open for the communication element of it properly. Mm. And you yeah, need to care as well. It's nice if you care. Like, I really cared that Matt yeah. was dying inside, even though I tell him that I don't care. I did care. <laughs> 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 oh amazing well um we did it we fired through 15 horror games there is for uh for halloween and um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time louise i really appreciate it oh, no. it's uh 
Thank you it for having me. Last, oh, yeah, of course. It always lasts longer than I think it's going to. So, um, yeah, <laughs> but we really appreciate it. Yeah, that was a good range of picks. Yeah, for sure. So, Louise, where can people find you on social media and um, and check out your work? Uh, the best place is on Twitter. So I'm at shiny underscore demon. And you can listen to Sound of Gaming on BBC Sounds at the moment, or you can listen live, one of those strange live things, on BBC Radio 3 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the first Saturday of every month. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely recommend our, our listeners check that out. Find like an episode that um, you know covers like a genre that you're interested in and then uh, check it out. As people have listened to this, will have uh, deducted uh, Louise is like a, a proper kind of pro host and not just sort of like... Um, <laughs> Uh, doing the silly nonsense that me and Matthew do on this every week. So, uh, yeah, definitely like, um, definitely check that out. You're being absurd. So, you sound great. <laughs> Crazy humans. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, um, yes, if you'd like to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's BackPagePod on Twitter. Matthew, where can people find you? I'm at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. We'll be um, we'll be back next week with a new episode. If you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd, we'd massively appreciate it. Many of you have, which we uh, we're very grateful for. But um, yes, we'll be back next week with an episode, our fiftieth episode, all about the art of the back page, which is appropriate for the this podcast given our name. So um, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye for now.